If you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd love to look with you this morning in the book of Ruth. We're going to be reading the last part of chapter 2 into the first part of chapter 3. We're really going to be thinking together about all of chapter 3 as well as the end of chapter 2. I really enjoyed working out this series with John Paul and being able to go through it with you. It's been a lot of fun. I've never preached through Ruth before, so it's been a lot of fun to do that. And I hope you've enjoyed looking at this story as well. Uh, But I'm going to read chapter 2, verse 17 through verse 5, I believe, of, excuse me, verse, yeah, 5 of of chapter 3. So what I'm going to read to you is a real life story. This is a story about our people, the people of God that live long before us. We're connected with these folks here in this chapter and in this book. So as I read this to you, just remember, this is a story of God's people. It's our story and what God does and how amazing he is. So hear this, chapter 2, beginning of verse 17. And it starts off talking about Ruth, just so you know. So she gleaned, meaning Ruth, in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, so she brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, That man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these stories. We thank you that we are connected to your people throughout history. Would you help us to understand? Would you help us to grow In our understanding of our Savior, would you help us, Father, Son, and Spirit, would you help us by changing us and forming and shaping us more and more into the image of your Son? Jesus, we need more of you. Without you, we can do nothing. But through you, we can do all things. Help us. Help us, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. 
If you're just joining us, let's begin by just recapping where we've been. Remember, the theme of this little book of Ruth is, anybody remember? Yes, redeeming love. I heard it a few times, even if you whispered it. The theme of this little book is redeeming love. And let's remember where we've been so far in the first couple chapters. Uh, In chapter one, there was a family of four that lived around Jerusalem. And because there was a famine in the land, this little family of four decided that they would leave, leave Jerusalem and go about 50 miles to this place called Moab. This little family of four was um, a husband named Elimelech, uh, his wife was named Naomi, and they had two sons, Mechlon and Kilion. And they traveled to Moab 50 miles away because that was a place where they could find food. And they ended up staying there 10 years. And then they learned that there was food back in their homeland, and so they decided to go. Although, excuse me, even though they decided to go back, their family looked much different. In this 10-year period, Elimelech died, Mechlon died, Kilion died, Naomi was the only one left. Can you imagine that? You look back over your life, and in a 10-year period, can you say a lot's changed? You can relate to this story. Naomi had two daughters-in-law, no grandchildren, and she encouraged both of them to go back to their home place. They were in Moab, they were on the road back to Jerusalem, and she stopped and said, I think you need to go back home. It's going to be better for you if you go back to your place with your people. Don't come with me. If you come with me back to Jerusalem, you're going to be in a worse position than if you stay at home. So, perhaps you remember what happened. Orpah decided to stay. She returned to Moab and remained there. But Ruth stayed with Naomi. So they returned. They lived their lives as outsiders. They lived their lives as, if you will, um, on the fringes of society. Even though Ruth had claimed the God of Israel. They still were going back to an incredibly foreign place for Ruth. Naomi couldn't have children anymore. She probably, she anticipated no more marriage. She had no family that was close enough to her to provide. She didn't know what was going to go on. When they went back to Jerusalem, Naomi and Ruth, what they found was, as you might imagine, John Paul brought this out last week, an awful lot of threats. You know, women that were single and not married, especially those that were foreign, they were under the greatest threat. People, as you read, as we even read today, uh, Naomi was constantly concerned that, that Ruth would be assaulted. And even though they lived with tremendous threat, what they found last week, what John Paul talked about, was compassion and kindness and provision. They found lots of places where they could glean the edges of the field and they could gain sustenance and they could live. So we pick up the story this morning with a long day for Ruth. Verse 17 tells you she worked all day. Here's where we pick up the story. That evening she returned back to Naomi because she was staying with Naomi and she said to Naomi, I had a full day. 
And she even brought her little doggy bag. You remember this last week? Ruth had this encounter with Boaz. And Boaz said, here, come and eat, come and eat. And she ate till she was satisfied. And Boaz said, take whatever's left over back home with you. So she did. She went home to Naomi and said, hey, here's what I did all day long. And here's even some food, some extra food that I have. We have supplies to make more food and you can eat the rest of what I had for dinner. And Naomi asks Ruth, where did you go? What's the name of the man who owned the field where you worked? Who is it? And you know the story, perhaps. Ruth says, Naomi, I worked at this man's farm named Boaz. And Naomi was ecstatic. She was so happy. She said, you need to stay there because if you don't, you might get assaulted. You need to stay there because Boaz is someone who's actually something of a close relative to us. So that's how, the, that's how chapter 2 ends. But then we find out as the story continues that Naomi doesn't just realize for the first time that Boaz exists and that he is something of a close relative. Naomi is scheming. She decides, I am going to tell Ruth a plan by which you, Ruth, can really have a deep connection with Boaz. She is scheming and planning. So if you read chapter 3, and if you read all of chapter 3, it tells you her plan. This, oh, by the way, just to make this abundantly clear, there was a big spark between Ruth and Boaz. There was a connection. They liked each other. You can't read these first two chapters and not, and not pick up on the fact that they liked each other. Do you remember what it's like to like someone? I hope you do. I hope you haven't forgotten what it's like to like someone. I hope your existence is not just so routine that you forget about what you like about the person that you're with or what you like about your job or what you like about your coworkers or what you like about your neighborhood or what you like about this place that we live. Have you forgotten? You know, the first time that I met Jenny, I knew something was different about her. How about you? Those of you that are married, do you remember what that spark was like? It was probably something that wasn't really tangible. It was something that you felt. It was something that you knew. There was something, there was something of an excitement that, that drew you to that other person, even if they rejected you to start off with, but you remained persistent. Have you forgotten that? That's a good thing. Ruth and Boaz... There was a spark between them from the beginning, from the beginning. And it's beautiful to read it in these chapters. It's beautiful to remember that. So if you've forgotten why it is you love your loved one, take some time and reflect on that. This is a great season to do that. It's a good time to remember your friends and everything around, everyone around you and why you like people around you. Because oftentimes we can just become kind of dull, you know what I mean? Maybe you don't have that problem at all. Just get into a routine and forget why you like the people that are around you. So Ruth and Boaz had this spark and Naomi had a plan. So this is what she says to Ruth. Ruth, this is the harvest season. 
So Ruth, this is what you need to do. You need to go down to Boaz's farm at night. And you need to go at night, and after he finishes working for the day, after he eats, after he's rest, being ready to rest, I want you to pursue him. Now, Ruth decided that this is what she was going to do. So, I'm sure she said, Naomi, well, what in the world do you want? Because Naomi ended up saying, just do this, and he'll tell you exactly what to do. Now, here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting. Ruth follows this plan. She goes at night. After Boaz had, had finished his work, after he had eaten, when he decided to go to bed, she came out from wherever she was, and she laid down at Boaz's feet. And just what Naomi said, she uncovered his feet, and she laid down to cover up his feet with her body. And if you look in verse 9 of chapter 3, um, and a little before that, what you find out is that uh, Boaz wakes up, and it's about midnight, and he's startled, and he says, who are you? What are you doing? And Ruth has somewhat of an interesting reply. She says around verse 9 of chapter 3, Boaz, I want you to cover me with your wings. Now, that might sound strange to you, but let's dive into that just a little bit so you know what he's talking about, what she's talking about. Remember, this idea of wings was exactly how Boaz described Ruth's faith. In chapter 1, when Ruth had proclaimed that she wants to belong to the God of Israel, that she was going to leave behind her mother and leave behind her father and leave behind everything that was familiar, and she was going to belong to the God of the Bible and to his people, Boaz had heard all of that, and he said to Ruth, he described her faith as someone who decided to come under the shadow of the wings of God. In other words... Boaz knew that Ruth had been redeemed. And here, Ruth is using the exact same language, saying, Boaz, I want you to redeem me. If you want me to make it super clear to you, she gave Boaz a marriage proposal. She said, I want you to want to marry me. I am here because I want you to redeem me me. You see, one of the themes of this whole story, one of the concepts that God is communicating to us is this idea of Redeemer. Remember, when God's people entered the promised land, the land that God had promised to his people, what God said is that that land should be divided into, uh, a, that land is to be divided up so that all the tribes would have a place to live. And so, Land was very important. And when Naomi and Elimelech left Jerusalem to go to Moab, they inevitably sold the land that they had. So when Naomi decided to return, excuse me, return to Jerusalem with her daughter-in-law and nothing else, she had nowhere to go. She had no hope. But God, in the way that he set up community, in the way that God thinks about community, has actually made a provision for this very thing that happened to Naomi. 
this very thing that would happen to people who lost everything and had no hope. And it's called this idea of being a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. Oh, by the way, God had more provisions for those who were marginalized and had nothing. We've already looked at one in the previous chapter, gleaning. Remember that? In which the land that you own, you couldn't maximize your profits. You had to leave the corners of your property open such that people that had nothing could come and glean and gather food and supplies so that they could be fed, so they could live. And God provided for those who had nothing or who lost everything, not only by gleaning, but also with this idea of a redeemer. You see, in the Old Testament, there are four things that a redeemer could do. The first one is this. A redeemer was someone who could, was within the family, and they could represent that person. And furthermore, to use the word redeem, they could redeem that family member's trouble. Because here are four ways that people got in trouble. So a redeemer, if someone in their family had died, that redeemer could avenge the death, the murder that happened in the family. A family member could say, I want justice. And he could seek justice for the family member that had been murdered. Here's another thing. If a family member had debt that they couldn't pay, the Redeemer could step in and say, I want to represent this family member of mine, and I want to redeem them from their debt. I'll pay it. The third thing they could do is that they could actually marry. So that, in Ruth's case, and even benefiting Naomi, because Ruth was connected with Naomi and her family, because Ruth had married one of Naomi's sons, it meant that it was possible for Ruth to actually have a family. It meant that it was possible that she could grow a new family. And the Redeemer could provide all of that. Could avenge someone, could provide and pay the debt, could marry, and could even provide land. The, re the Redeemer could go to the person that bought the land from Naomi's family and say, I want to buy it back. So that's what Boaz was willing to do. That's what Ruth was asking of Boaz. Will you please do this for me? Will you please not only buy back the land, but I want you to marry me, Boaz. I want you to marry me. And of course, he was willing to do it. You'll hear next week about this little catch that Boaz had to figure out before he decided, made his final decision about what would actually happen. But he was ready and willing to do everything that Ruth was asking of him. And that's the gist of the story. Now I have some applications for you. I got three applications, something you can think about, something you can wrestle with, something you can ponder. Three applications as we think about this story. The first one is this. When you read back through this story, and I hope you will, especially reading the details I didn't read in chapter 3 about what happened between Ruth and Boaz, here's my first application. Let's not try to sanitize the Bible just to fit our own Western American individualism. Let's not try to sanitize the Bible. When you go back through and read this story, what you will find are the details of what happened. This was Naomi's plan. 
This is what she wanted Ruth to do to Boaz. I didn't tell you all the details. I'm going to tell them to you now. This is what Naomi said to Ruth. Put yourself in the situation, if you will. She said, Ruth, I want you to go shower. I want you to clean up. I want you to put on your best perfume. And I want you to take your best clothes. And then I want you to go down to Boaz's place of work at night. And I want you to wait. I want you to wait, as you heard this, after, you fin- after he finishes eating, after he's finished doing everything he needs to do and lays down, then I want you to come out. Then I want you to uncover his feet. Then I want you to cover his feet with your body. What do you think about that? As it turns out, not only did Boaz say, I am willing to accept your proposal, Ruth, he ends up saying, why don't you stay the night? So they stayed the night together. And the next morning, when they both wake up, Boaz says to Ruth, you know, I don't want people to know that you were here all night. So um, let's see, that cloak you have on, let me have it and I'm going to put a bunch of grain in it so that you can leave in the morning and people will see that perhaps they will, people will see that you're carrying supplies and maybe they'll think that you just came really early to get more supplies that you need at your home. Let's not try to sanitize the Bible here. Let's not try to to force the Bible to say something that we might want it to say. We don't really know what happened that night, okay? We don't know. We don't know exactly what happened. Let's not try to make this story sound as if it isn't risque. Let's be honest. This story is very sexually suggestive, isn't it? If you put yourself in the situation, maybe you've been in that situation. It is sexually suggestive. And beloved, we don't get to sanitize our own lives. It's not as though God tells us, hey, just make something up or present in a certain way. See, the Bible is inviting us all the time in every place. The Bible is inviting us to be honest about what is really true about us. The Bible is constantly inviting us to be honest. We aren't pure any more than Ruth, any more than Boaz, any more than Naomi. And we shouldn't pretend like we are. The Bible never pretends that people are better than they actually are. And even in the midst of this story, we ought to recognize the glory of it and we also ought to feel a little bit uncomfortable with what's going on. And that's okay. That's the way God writes the Bible. So there's my first application. Don't try to sanitize the Bible. Be careful who you read and what they say about the scriptures, what they say about this story. Because I read a lot of guys this week. I read a lot of professionals this week that tried to say things that just simply were not true. Embrace the story as is because it's our story too. Application number two. Look, there is always room for growth. 
always room for growth. Naomi, do you remember where, what state of mind she was in in chapter one? Do you remember where, where she was in her heart, what she was feeling and thinking at the end of chapter one? Do you remember that? If you've forgotten, go back and read verse 19 and following of chapter one. She's like, look, my name is Naomi, which is somewhat connected to the idea of sweetness, but I was full when I was in Jerusalem, and now when I, and then when I left, I became empty. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitter. Remember that? She was a bitter woman. She had been through bitter circumstances, difficult circumstances. And you know what we see here in this story? Do you know what we see happening when she's talking to Ruth and she's planning It seems to me that maybe her bitterness, some of her bitterness, has given way to maybe, maybe control, maybe manipulation. She's not as bitter as she was, it seems. She's actually thinking to herself, well, now that I have found out that that my daughter-in-law is connected with this guy named Boaz... Now it's time for me to try to control this situation and make something happen. Look, let's not be too harsh with Naomi. She was a desperate woman. Her back was against the wall. Haven't you been there? Haven't you been in a place before in which you felt as though your back was against the wall and you had no idea what to do other than try to scheme and control something? Haven't you been there? So even though there was growth in her life, even if she is trying to control things or manipulate things, let's not be too harsh on her. Because we can relate. We can relate to what she was going through. She was doing the best she could. That doesn't make it right. It just is, right? It's something we have to understand we're dealing with people. It's something we have to understand when we're thinking about life and what happens when lives crash and clash and when things happen. We have to understand. We have to try to understand. What about Ruth and Boaz? Always room for growth. What about Ruth and Boaz? This isn't wise. What they did isn't wise. Probably at some level, it's not right. God is not saying this is the pattern to follow here. Just look at Ruth and Boaz and what they did. That's not what God is saying. How about this? Don't all of us, don't all of us have relationship scars? Don't all of us have sexual scars? Don't all of us struggle with manipulation and control? Whether you know the scars of being manipulated by other people, or maybe God has brought it to your attention how you love to control and manipulate things. Don't we all have room for growth in all of these areas? You see, God is actually at work through this story. God is at work. 
Every motive, every action, every plan, everything that happens in this story, God has to redeem all of it, right? We have such a desire to try to find some human hero in every story that we forget we are never the hero. God is always the main character in every story. Everything is always in the scriptures ultimately about God. And he is at work in the midst of this. He is at work redeeming everything. He is at work saying, look, I work through sinful circumstances and sinful people. If you go back through and read Genesis, through Deuteronomy, into Joshua, and into Judges, there hasn't been a single person that followed God that was perfect. There's no human hero in any story up to this point. None. And it doesn't start here. God is always the main character. He is always at work. Everything here needs redemption. So let's not try to sanitize the Bible. There's always room for growth. And the third one is this. Practice the gospel. Practice the gospel. Think about Boaz in this story. You realize that because he followed God, you realize that his, his life, let me Man, sometimes I wish I could just, you know, like delete things that I say. You know what I mean? The way that God had ordered Boaz's life meant that he couldn't maximize all of his profits. Just hang with me here. Boaz was a landowner. Remember this gleaning idea we talked about? It meant that he had to leave the corners of his field or more open so that others could gain from the work that he had that he had put into his farm. It meant that he wasn't incessantly thinking about the next person that he was going to dominate and the next little business that he was going to conquer. It meant that he was incessantly thinking about people other than himself because he couldn't just live his life trying to maximize everything. It meant that he was open to thinking about other people. It meant that he was open to thinking about mercy and grace toward others, toward outsiders, and this overflowed. John Paul talked about this last week. Even his workers were gracious toward Ruth and others. Why would his workers be kind to Ruth and others that walked up to glean? Because they knew the heart of their, the owner of their land, Boaz. They knew that he cared for people. And so they could welcome Ruth and they could welcome Naomi and others. It meant that Boaz was constantly thinking about other people and not himself and not what he could maximize and not what he could get. It meant that he could look at other people with grace. It meant that he could look around and say, where can I show mercy? Where can I be kind? Boaz was practicing the good news. And let me tell you two ways that he specifically does it. Two ways we can do this too. This is one application I've used before, but it keeps hitting me. It keeps hitting me. 
You remember when we talked about this idea of put that on my account? When you read back through this story, what you find is Boaz being willing to just simply say in shorthand, put that on my account. When Ruth makes this proposal, you know what Boaz does? Yes, put that on my account. I will go back and buy the land. Put that on my, Ruth, you tell Naomi that, that you will have land again. Put that on my account. Put it on my account. People walked up to Boaz's farm because they needed some sustenance and, and, and they needed resources. Yes, put that on my account. Beloved, if you want to practice the gospel, you got to say, put that on my account. We got to be able to look at other people, whether they've wronged us, or whether they need something that we can provide, and say, put, just put that on my account. I'll take care of it and not hold it against people. The flip side of that is this catch people doing good. One time when Jenny and I were trying to figure out how in the world can we, can we be better parents? Maybe you're there, I don't know. It seems like Jenny and I incessantly think, my goodness, what are we doing? I don't, I don't know what to do. Don't know how to love my kids better. Don't know how to connect with my girls. It's a big struggle. Part of the advantage of having the 9 o'clock service when I'm not here is I can tell you that. And one of the folks that we talked with one time said this. They said to me, Dave, as a parent, catch your kids doing good. And that meant so much to me because you know what I'm good at? Catching my kids doing bad. How about you? You good at catching people doing bad? Here's Boaz. Go back and read the story. He's catching people doing good. And he's highlighting that. Ruth makes this profession, and Boaz enhances that and encourages her. He catches her doing good. He says, Ruth, you left everything to follow this God. You left everything. He catches her doing good over and over and over and over. And if we want to be a people that are practicing the gospel... We are going to have to get better. We are going to have to improve. We are going to have to desire to say to people, put that on my account. In other words, we have to be a people that forgive one another and are willing to absorb the consequences when someone sins against us. And it also means that we should want to catch people doing good and encourage, to encourage others. That's what Boaz was doing. Well, those are my three applications. Ready to go? Isn't that oftentimes how we think about this stuff? Well, let's get into the Bible. Let's understand the passage, get to the applications, and then close out. Well, here's the thing. How in the world, how in the world is it possible for us to stop trying to sanitize the Bible for our Western American individualistic mindset? How are we going to do that? How are we ever going to get to the point in which we realize there's always room for growth and not feel tremendous amount of shame and tremendous amount of guilt and not hear that there's always room for growth and think, well, I just need to get right back on the treadmill and just start working harder to be a better person. And how in the world can we hear we need to practice the gospel, meaning 
that we want to say to our friends, our loved ones, our enemies, put that on my account, catch them doing good. How in the world can we do all of that? How are we going to do it? Who has to be in our lives in order for this to happen? I need you to be a little bit louder. Thank you. If we stop right here and you take those applications and think, well, this is what this text wants me to do. I'm going to go do it. We have changed the message of Jesus into a self-help moralism. There's no way that we can understand the Bible correctly without Jesus. There's no way that we can understand that we all need to grow and there's all room for growth and not just be riddled with guilt and shame without Jesus. There's no way that we will ever practice the gospel if we are not living in it, if we are not living in Jesus, right? So actually, the great application of every sermon is Christ himself. And it's not hard to find Jesus in this story. Boaz is the redeemer, right? Boaz is the one who functions as the redeemer on behalf of of Ruth, and even Naomi. You see, Jesus is the one who represents us, and Jesus is the one who is willing to redeem us from all of our trouble. And even though this story with Ruth and Boaz is scandalous, beloved, the work of Jesus is far more scandalous It is scandalous to believe that a man like Jesus, who's perfectly righteous and holy, would die for people like us that are rebellious. It is scandalous that someone who is perfect would willingly lay down their life and live for people like us who aren't really convinced that, anybody, that we're bad enough for someone that need to die for us? That's scandalous. It's scandalous that Jesus would be willing to die for us and be raised from the dead for people like us who don't live every day as if someone died for us and had to die for us. And the work that Jesus did he soaked up the wrath of a holy God. He bought us back. And he didn't just die and rise from the dead so that we would have this little piece of land somewhere. He actually died and rose from the dead so that he might bring joy to the world. Joy to the world as far as the curse is found. So if we're ever going to read the Bible as is, if we're ever going to understand growth and not be riddled with guilt and shame and get on the treadmill and all that mess that all of us have struggled with, and if we're ever going to understand how to practice the gospel, we got to live in the reality that Jesus has done everything for us. Once that happens... And once we know how much Jesus has said to us over and over, put that on my account, catches us doing good, we'll be able to live that out in our lives. That's the gospel. That's our hope. As far as the curse is found. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for loving, redeeming, representing. We thank you for these stories because even though they talk about broken individuals who never, who are never perfect, they point us to the reality that you have come to be the perfect redeemer. And the great scandal of the gospel is that you would die for rebellious people and that you would do that willingly. Thank you. Impress upon us more and more deeply that we have been bought by your blood. In your name, amen.